How many of y'all have seen The Little Mermaid? Good. That's really good. Because that way you'll get the illustration I'm about to use. Apparently they're making a live action one, I think. I don't know how they're going to hold their breath underwater for that long. Because mermaids are not real. Um, neither are mermen. Uh, they're both fake. But there's a scene in The Little Mermaid, and, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but Ariel is swimming through and she gets to her cave, right? Where she's got all of her treasures that she's found in her cave. And she is going through and she says, I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You guys remember that? And she pulls out one of those gadgets and gizmos, one of those who's it's or what's it's, and she holds it up and it's, it's a fork. And we all look at the, the fork that she's holding in her hands and we're like, that, that's a fork. Like, that's not exciting. Like somebody on a ship dropped their fork and you found it and that's, that's just a fork. And it's all like jaggedy too. Like it's, it's a bent fork. It's not good for anything anymore. But we look at that and we're like, yeah, that's a fork. You stab food with it, you pick it up and you put it in your mouth. But she doesn't know what it is. And she's got this seagull friend because mermaids and seagulls talk to each other apparently. And her seagull's friend is Scuttle, right? And Scuttle helps her figure out what this fork is. And they're trying to figure out what they should call it, right? And Scuttle comes up with his name. Do you guys remember what the name is for the fork? Dinglehopper, dingle right? She holds up the fork and, and it's, it's a dinglehopper. And all of a sudden she's taken something that the rest of us, we know what it's for and she's made it something that it was never intended to be. She's come up with her own name for it. But that doesn't change the fact that it's, it's still a fork, and that it was designed to be a fork and to be used as a fork and not to be used as a dingle hopper, whatever a dingle hopper does. I've got a question for you guys, and that's this. What is this book for? What's the purpose of this book? You guys can interact. We can participate. We can have a little bit of back and forth in this. What is this book? It's the Bible. What else is this book? God's Word. What else is this book? It's history, yes. It's what? Living and active, okay. So, so what's the purpose of the Bible? Help us know how to live, okay. Yeah, I think it's helpful to help us know how to live. But I think it goes beyond that too, right? It's not just to help us know how to live. It should transform the way that we live. That it is living and active. That it is a book that we come to. And if you're a follower of Christ in this room and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then as you read the Bible, as you read this book and everything that it's got within its pages, the Holy Spirit's going to go to work on your life, transforming your life so that you look different after your encounter with God's Word than you did beforehand. But for too many of us, we treat the Bible like a fashion accessory. We carry it around and we make sure that we've got the right version and we make sure that we've got the trendy version on our phones and the right app and we make sure that we do the DBR and we check the box and everything else like that. But it really makes about as much difference in our lives as the belt that we put on in the morning. And God's telling us and God's going to tell us in the text that we're specifically going to study together tonight that that's not the point of the Bible. That God has given us his word to change us, to transform us. So that as we read the Bible, we become, as a result of that, in the way that we respond to it, more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is why all of us are still here. And so we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 tonight. As we're studying the book of James, 
we've seen so far two uh, ways that we can kind of examine our lives to see where we're at with regards to our relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And the first one was how we respond to trials. And if we're willing to, to go through trials, to go through difficulty in our lives and say afterwards, you know, this was God working to produce steadfastness in my life so that we're going to be able to endure a trial. The other thing that we've seen is how we respond to temptation. And we looked at that last week. That no one should say when they're tempted, hey, I'm being tempted by God because God is not tempted by evil and tempts no one, but temptation comes from within. And we talked about, man, how do we fight and battle temptation? And that's a, a sign of how we're doing with our walk with Christ. And now the, the third one in chapter one alone in James for how you're doing, where you're at, kind of a litmus test for you with your walk with Christ is how you respond to God's word. James chapter one, verses 19 through 27. Let's read it. It says this, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, you can read there. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Tonight we look at your response to God's word. The way that you respond to the Bible, both when it's preached and when you read it on your own, says volumes about your relationship with God. James starts there in verses 19 through 21. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's important to remember that James was writing to a specific group of believers at this time. People that he was picturing in mind, real people, real churches, real believers that were scattered throughout the dispersion. And he was doubtless writing to confront and to, uh, to, to adjust some of the things that they were doing that weren't right, that weren't good. And one of those things appears to be that there was a lot of infighting within the church. There was a lot of quarreling. There was a lot of, of anger rising up within the church and causing divisions amongst brothers and sisters. And James is saying, hey, that's not good. And so He's addressing that, and he says there, he says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And we hear that, and we think to ourselves, well, that sounds pretty wise, and, and really, it is pretty wise. In fact, this was a common wisdom idiom, being slow to use our words, quick to listen to somebody else, and, and having a long fuse on our anger. In fact, we find similar thoughts in Proverbs, Proverbs ten nineteen says this, when words are many, sin is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven, Whoever holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit, not a hot-tempered man, but he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs twenty nine twenty, Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? 
there's more hope for a fool than for him. And James says we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Hey, Luke, will you bring my volume down a little bit? Man, I'm ringing up here a little bit off the, uh, the podium. Thank you. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's good advice. It's practical advice. It's advice that all of us can take and we can live out on a daily basis in our relationships with others, that we should hear somebody out before we respond. In fact, in Proverbs 18, I go there all the time in counseling because in Proverbs 18, there's so much there about this whole idea. In fact, that's where we read, you know, a man is right in his own eyes until another comes and examines him. And it says it's, uh, it's foolish to formulate your response before the person who you're talking with finishes what they're saying. And it says it's better to, to understand there than to be understood. And so just relationally, we can sit here and say, you know, it's good to practice these things, to be slow to speak, to be quick to hear, to be slow to anger. But James pivots here in these verses, in verse 21, and he addresses specifically what it is that we need to be above and beyond all else quick to hear. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. In other words, the most important thing James is writing to his audience and to us as well, the most important thing for you to hear regularly and to be quick to hear is the word of God. Initially, he talks about the the word that's able to save your souls, which is the gospel, right? That we need to make sure that we've heard the gospel, understood the gospel, and the gospel is going to begin to go to work transforming us. But from this point, James just goes after God's word in general and is saying we need to be quick to hear God's word. Point number one tonight, you can write it down this way. Read the Bible daily. Read the Bible daily. Be quick to hear. Hear what? Hear God's word. Be in the word daily. You guys remember from elementary school, the the food pyramid? I I tried to find that. I don't think it exists anymore because it changes so often. And, you know, now gluten is bad and sugar is bad. And and everybody who grew up on gluten and sugar is going to die of cancer someday. And, dude, whatever. Our food tasted better. Um... But the, the food pyramid, and so now they've got like my daily plate, like you want this much this and this much that. Do you guys remember old school food pyramid? Do, do you know what was in the bottom layer you wanted the most of in the bottom layer? Carbs, right? Yeah, run that by the keto dieters today, right? <laughs> Dude, you need to eat six helpings of carbs a day. It's, no, that's bad. It's bad sugar, whatever, right? Now my plate, they're like, you need to have three or four cups of fruit. Dude, by the time you guys have kids, it's going to be like fruit is going to kill you. It just is. It's, it's going to come after you. It's going to kill you in the middle of the night. The pineapple, it's, it's angry that you've been eating it for so long, and it's going to murder you in your sleep. All that to say, you can't trust what should be foundational in your diet intake anymore. It changes every single day with the, the different diets that pop up. But guys, there's one thing that should be foundational in your diet every single day, and it's God's word. That needs to be foundational. That needs to be the thing that you are taking in more than anything else. That needs to think, be the first thing you wake up and you are taking in daily is God's word. But it's not just that you take in the Bible or that you read the Bible, but it's also how you take in the Bible, how you read the Bible. And James says we need to receive it with, what's that next word there? Rhymes with schmeekness, but starts with an M. Meekness. <laughs> it's not a word, Luke. I know you're wondering out there. Meekness, meekness with humility, right? With submissiveness, with trust. 
And so what that tells us is that when we come to God's word, we can't just pick it up flippantly and just go, well, I just need to knock out the DBR today so I can say that I've done it and move on or so that I don't fall too far behind and just open it and kind of let our minds run through everything else and let our eyes just kind of glaze over the words on the page and go, well, I'm, I'm done. I've spent time in the word today. I'm good to go. That's not receiving the word with meekness. Some suggestions for you as you think about daily reading God's word. First is this, find an undistracted time every day. An undistracted time for you to read the word. I know you guys are busy, I get that. I know you guys have crazy schedules, I understand that. But you do have time to read God's word and read it with intentionality. And if you don't, you need to adjust your priorities. Because it's more important than something that is in your life right now. I guarantee it. For some of you, that may mean that you need to just get up earlier in the morning. And you may hate that idea right now, but you know what? You'll get used to it. You do. You get used to it. You just get used to waking up earlier. And if you say, well, I already get up way early, so I don't know if I could wake up. You can. You can wake up earlier. Just set your alarm clock and get up earlier and get after God's word. Find an undistracted time every single day for reading God's word. And guys, let me just encourage you. It doesn't have to be first thing in the morning, but please don't make it the last thing you do before you go to bed. That's a waste. Can it still be effective? Yeah, it it can still be effective. But man, God's word is meant to go to work on your life. And so if you're reading his word and then shutting off your your body to go to sleep overnight, you're, you're missing some just prime application time with the word of God in your life. Find an undistracted time. Second, find an undistracted place for reading God's word. Find a place where you can, you're not going to be bothered. Not just by other people, but by your, yourself as well. Get the, the phone away from you. Get the computer away from you. Don't have the TV on in the background. Don't be around a bunch of other people who are going to interrupt you. Find that undistracted place to spend time in God's word daily. Third, have a plan. Have a plan for reading God's word. The DBR is great. Daily Bible reading. We have it on our, available on our website. You can even get it in these uh, handy bookmarks that, that list them on there. But they have them also on, on apps, right? I mean, the ESV app has a ton of different reading plans that you can get on there. But have a plan. Know what you're supposed to read and, and follow that plan and stay on that plan. Fourth, come to the word expectantly. In other words, what I mean by that is come to the word saying, okay, I've got the Holy Spirit as a believer in Jesus Christ. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, right? Romans 8, 9 says if if somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they don't belong to Christ. So there's no second blessing that you're waiting for for the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. It's inarguable, okay? If you have the Holy Spirit, come to God's word expecting the Holy Spirit to do something as you read it to change you, to transform you, to convict you, to encourage you, to whatever it may be. Come expecting something out of the reading of the word. I think so many times that we walk away and we don't walk away feeling like we benefited from the word or from a sermon is because we don't come expecting. We don't come ready. We don't come prepared. We don't come ready and expecting God to do something through our time in the word. So read expectantly. Fifth, pray before you read. Pray for humility and understanding that you would approach it with with meekness. That you wouldn't put yourself in authority above God's word, but that you would submit yourself to God's word. 
Pray for humility and understanding. Sixth, give thanks to God for the word. When you come daily to pick up the Bible, to read the Bible, and you can understand the words of the Bible, that God has revealed himself through this book, give thanks to God that he has done that in a way that we can understand, that we can get a glimpse of who he is. Seventh, read with intentionality. And this goes a little bit to the undistracted time, undistracted place, but even more than that, read with intentionality. And what I mean by this is guard against the mind drift. You guys have all picked up a book, and I'm sure you've done it with the Bible plenty of times, where you've picked up the book and you've started reading, and you get going, and a thought enters your mind, and all of a sudden that thought produces three more thoughts, produces four more thoughts, produces, and you're just, you have no clue what you just read anymore. And you get through the chapter, and you're like, well, that chapter's done, and you close your Bibles, and you get up, and you walk away. Read with intentionality. A great way to guard against mind drift because sometimes thoughts pop in our mind and they seem super important. We don't want to lose the thought. Have a, a notepad next to you that's blank and a, and a pen. And as you're reading the Bible, if a thought pops into your mind that you're tempted to chase, just write that thought down on your notepad and put it then out of your mind and go back into to focusing on what you're doing with, with God's word. And then you can go back to that list later on during the day when, when it's more appropriate for you to, to focus on those things. Guard against mind drift. Eighth, read with curiosity. Curiosity, not skepticism, but curiosity. Okay, Lord, what, what does this mean? What, what, what should I do with this? How does this play itself out in my life? Uncover the, the, the gold nuggets in there, right? Un, turn over the rocks and, and look in God's word for the, the nuggets for, uh, for application. Ninth, read with openness openness. Don't come to a passage thinking, man, I've read this a million times. I know the story. Let me just get through this. Or don't come to a passage going, well, this is Leviticus. This is going to be boring. Don't come to a passage going, this is Song of Solomon. I'm not married. I don't even know if I should read this yet. Read with openness. It's part of humility. That's part of meekness to say, okay, God, I may have read this passage a hundred times before, but you can teach me something out of this because your word is deep enough. I need to learn. So teach me in this. Tenth, read prayerfully. Don't just pray before, don't just pray after, pray while you're reading. God, help me to understand the things I'm reading. Or, or maybe you read something that's amazing, like Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Pray in that moment and say, thank you, God, that this is true. That there's no condemnation for me anymore. Eleventh, reread. Reread. If you read and you, you've got a shorter section for the day and you get through it and you're like, wow, that went by quickly. Go back, reread it again. Or read it in the morning and then go back in, on your lunch break and read it again on your lunch break or, or a portion of it on your lunch break. It's part of what the process of, of meditation is. Reread the text. Twelfth, read to memorize. Rereading is going to help you, but read to memorize. Sometimes people memorize entire books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, and maybe that's not you. Maybe you're going, I, I, I haven't memorized much. Start with a verse, two verses, three verses, but read to memorize, internalize God's words so that it's going to be useful for you later on. Thirteenth, read joyfully. Read with joy that, that the stuff that this is telling you is true. When you read about the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, that should get you amped up. That should get you excited about life, right? Read joyfully as you're reading God's word. Finally, 14th, read purposefully. 
purposefully. In other words, read by the, the, the Bible and then ask yourself, okay, what should I do with this? What's the purpose for why I'm reading right now? What's the purpose of what God has revealed to me through my time in the Word today? It's the most subpoints I've ever had, 14, so there you go. And that list is not exhaustive, but it's going to help you receive the Word with meekness, like James is talking about here, with humility, with submissiveness to the Word. It's going to remind you that, yes, the Word saved you and the Gospel saved you, but it's not done with you. That God wants to use the Word to continue to transform you. After encouraging his readers to take the word in with meekness on a regular basis, James turns to another crucial element of our time in the word, and that is how we respond to it through applying God's word. Look what he says there in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verse 22 couldn't be any clearer for us, could it? But be doers of the word and not hearers only. So when we read in Ephesians 4.32 this statement, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. What does God want us to do in that verse? He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be tenderhearted. He wants us to what? Forgive. And notice what he says. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know what that verse just did for you if you're a believer in Christ? It robbed you of holding a grudge. It robbed you of holding on to unforgiveness. No matter what has happened to you. As God in Christ forgave you so also you should forgive others. To be a doer of the word is to hear that verse. And if you've got somebody in your life that you need to go out and you need to forgive because you haven't, you need to go and do that. Or Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What does Paul want us to do in Colossians chapter 3 with sexual immorality and impurity? He wants us to mortify it, to put it to death, to get it out of our lives. Not just to memorize that verse, but to actually put that verse into action. Or Galatians 6.16. Galatians 6.16. And for, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. That's not the right verse. I forget what that said. There's other good ones that tell you to do things though. Reading that one going, that's not right, right? But the point is this. These are all examples of, of things that, God is, is calling us to do in the Bible. And not just the original audience that read the letter, but you and I today as well. It's just as applicable for us. It's, it's just as intended for us to take and apply it to our lives as it was for them. Point number two tonight is this, act on what you read. Read the Bible daily and two, act on what you read. Paul uses an illustration for us of this mirror and this man who looks intently at his natural face. The natural face there is, is intended to mean uh, the, the face without any, it's, it's not dolled up, okay? It's, it's not like cleaned up or anything else. This is like roll out of bed, look at yourself in the mirror kind of face, right? That's not a pretty sight for any of us in the morning, is it? It's just not. Let's just own that. And so you roll out of bed, you look at yourself in, in your face in the mirror, and what's the first thing that you try to do? Fix that, right? You're like, oh man, whoa, Something just went 
horribly wrong overnight, and I need to do something about that before I go out in public, right? And, and James is saying it, it's, it's like, I said Paul earlier, James is saying it's like looking at the mirror, seeing our, our uh, reflection, that natural look, and going, this is bad, but then just walking away and forgetting about it and not doing anything. And you go out in public and cars are like crashing on the side of the road because you walked out without cleaning yourself up before you left for the day, right? This is the person who hears God's word or reads it and walks away and does nothing with it. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've all gone out in public and you've seen the person who, you just ask yourself, Did you, do you have mirrors in your house? Like what happened this morning? Like how bad did your day already go? It's 9 a.m. James is, is comparing that idea to, to one who doesn't apply what he reads in scripture. They think to themselves, well, I don't need it. It's not necessary. It doesn't apply to me. It's not relevant to me. You know, it was for the original audience. Or that was a, a cultural thing at the time. That's not for today's culture and society. We're, we're way beyond when God originally inspired by the Holy Spirit authors to write the inspired word for word word of, of God. We've progressed beyond that. And so that was cultural. We don't, we don't really need that anymore. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. James is essentially saying this, and this is what I'm saying to you as well. You need an action point after every encounter with God's word. After every time that you spend in God's word, you should walk away with something that you're going to do as a result. Some way that you're going to put it into action, that you're going to apply to it, that you're going to respond to it. Because James says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only. What's the next two words? Deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. James says if, if you spend time in the word of God, if you hear the word of God, if you read the word of God, if you listen to the word of God and you do nothing in response to it, he says you're in the, a, a dangerous position of being one who is deceiving themselves into thinking that they are right with the Lord, thinking that they are godly when they're not. Because one of the signs that you have God's spirit living in you is that he's going to go to work on your life as you're reading God's word, as you're reading the scriptures. That's what it's for. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, it was referenced earlier. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, y'all, the Bible is God's scalpel in your life. He's the master surgeon and you have a problem internally and that problem internally is sin, right? Jesus said it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, idolatry, theft, murder, so on and so forth. And God's word is the scalpel in the hand of the divine surgeon that's gonna go after the sin problem that lives within every one of us and is gonna begin to bring healing as he exposes those things and roots them out of our lives through the word of God. But that only comes as we respond to God's word in action. In action. So as you read the Bible, it should do some things in you. Just again, some suggestions. First, it should convict you of sins. For you to repent of and leave behind. You read God's word, you read a passage, and you say, man, that's me. And I need to stop that. 
And so God's word convicts you of that sin and encourages you to, and not just encourages you, but commands you to repent and leave it behind. Second, it should encourage you to pursue godliness. Not just to convict you of sin, but encourage you to pursue the good things, the right things, the godly things. You read in, in Colossians chapter 3, not just what we're to put to death, but what we're to put on, right? Compassion, kindness, love for other people. And so the word of God should encourage us to say, you know what, I need to, to be better in that. I want to love others. And so we need to pursue those things. The Bible's also third going to remind you of truths that should lead you to thank God. Praise God, thank God, worship God for the truths that you read in Scripture. Again, like Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Fourth, your time in the Word should challenge you to excel still more in the areas that you're doing well in. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, you know what, you guys are doing a great job loving one another. In fact, I don't really even have need to write to you about that, except I'm going to tell you this, excel still more. In other words, Paul was telling the Thessalonians, don't be satisfied with something that you're known to be doing well, but try to, to do even better in those areas. So you may read in the word of God and go, you know, praise God, that's going well in my life right now. But this inspires me and challenges me to, to, to excel still more, to run even harder after those things. Fifth, it should motivate you to cut out the baggage that slows you down. Cut out the baggage that slows you down. You, you remember the writer of Hebrews said, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin. And there's two different things in our lives. Sometimes we have things in our lives that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're also things that slow us down in our pursuit of Christ. And so whatever that is for you that may slow you down in your pursuit of Christ, but maybe you, not somebody else, maybe it's video games. You know, you spend so much time in video games and you're reading God's word and you're coming across a passage like that in Hebrews going, man, what can I cut out of my life and run harder after Christ? Okay, I'm going to give that up. Or maybe it's a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's not even a sinful relationship, but you're going, you know what? This isn't doing me or the other person I'm in a relationship with any good when it comes to our relationship with the Lord right now. And so this is a baggage. This is something that I can drop and that will allow me to run harder after Christ. Sixth, reading God's word should equip you with truths to combat the lies of the enemy. Equip you with truths to combat the lies of the enemy. Again, the word of God and the armor of God is known as what? The sword of the spirit. Sword of the spirit, yeah, right? And it's the only offensive weapon that you have in the armor of God. Use it as an offensive weapon. You encounter temptation like we talked about last week. Have God's word internalized in your life so that you are able to identify the lie of the enemy and replace it with the truth of God's word. It should equip you to do battle. Seventh, it should strengthen your faith in God. Eighth, it should embolden your convictions that God is true, that the Bible is true. Ninth, it should inform your convictions, even in matters that are, are more gray areas. Spend time in God's word and, and follow the, the wisdom of God's word to know what you feel like you should be convicted to do or not do in some areas that maybe aren't as black and white. And then finally, it should compel a love for the lost in your life. It should compel a love for the lost people in your life. Y'all, the time that we spend in God's word should not be passive. 
It needs to be active. We need to be reading God's word with intentionality, expecting him to do something, saying, what do I need to do with this today? And if the first time you read it, you don't get it, go back and read it again. Pray, God, show me what you want me to do with this today. And go back after it again. And read it again and grab hold of of something that you can do in response. Another passage, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did God provide that list to create a, a cutesy little kid song that is sung in churches? No. Why did he provide the list of the fruit of the Spirit? So that we would do something, right? So we would examine our lives, say, okay, God, how am I doing in these areas? Where can I grow in these areas? How can I excel still more in the areas I'm doing well in? We need to do something with God's word. The contrast that James gives there, there's the man who looks and then walks away and doesn't do anything. But then in verse 25, he says, there's the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Why does he call it the law of liberty? Because the man's not looking at the law of God going, man, this is a burden to me. Rather, he's going, man, there is so much joy and freedom now that that I'm saved, that I'm a follower of Jesus in obeying God. He looks into the perfect law of God, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. You know what that word blessed means? It means happy. Like, like Harley's happy. Right? It means to be happy, to be satisfied, to be blessed by God, right? You want to be blessed by God. Be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. Verses 26 through 27. He goes on, he says this, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James returns a little bit here to our our words. Again, he's addressing a, a group of people that had a specific problem. He's saying, look, if you think you're religious but you can't even control your heart, your your tongue, the words that you're speaking, he goes, you're deceived. And this religion that you profess is, is worthless. Nobody likes a fraud, do they, right? A fake. Somebody who talks the talk but can't walk the walk. And James is saying, this is the person who's a hearer but not a doer. This is a person who's deceiving others and may them, themselves also be deceived into thinking that they're saved. This is the hypocrite, the person that gives religion a bad name. In fact, religion, as James is addressing it with this person, is nothing more than just ritual worship, external acts that they're doing, going through the motions, thinking that they're fine because they're showing up at church, they're carrying the right Bible, they're looking a certain way and talking a certain way around a certain group, but then they're a totally different person outside of that. And that's why a lot of you in this room probably recoil at the thought of being considered somebody who's religious, don't you? But I think we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because James doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He condemns a certain type of religion. The hypocritical religion. The fraudulent religion. The facade that people put up, but then they act differently when they're not around the church or when they're not around a certain group of people. That's the type of religion that James is confronting here. But then he says there's a religion that's pure and undefiled before God. And he says it's this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's an authentic religion that's out there. 
Point number three tonight is this. Be an authentic believer. Be an authentic believer. And God's word has everything to do with that. This is all within the context of being a doer and not just a hearer of God's word. Be an authentic believer. Amanda was telling me this morning uh, as we were driving back up from San Diego, a wedding that I did there last night, we were driving and, and we were talking about this, this passage and this text. And she said it always reminds her of our daughter Annie when she was first born because we brought her home from the hospital and babies have a great smell about them, don't they? They just do. They've got this like baby smell and you're like, that's awesome. You guys out there, you'll know eventually. You're putting on the tough guy act right now, but eventually you'll be like, whoa, babies smell good. Um, most of the time, except when you're changing their diapers and then they just don't. But she was telling me about, you know, we brought our, our daughter home from the hospital, cute little girl, everything else. She, had, she didn't have any hair, so we put this bow on her head so that people didn't call her a boy. It didn't work. People still called her a boy. But she had this bow on her head, and my, my wife was like, hey, I'm going to take her out with my mom and go shopping. Her mom would go shopping and everything else. is going to be this great trip. Well, the night before, my father-in-law, with good intentions, made BLTs in our apartment. So when you fry bacon inside a tiny apartment, the whole place smells like what? Bacon, right? Now, guys, you guys are out there going, this is amazing. What's going to smell better than a baby that smells like bacon, right? Like that's, that's a baby I can get behind. It's a bacon baby. Where do we get a bacon baby? Let's do this. But we had her car seat in the apartment with us. And so the smell of bacon permeated her car seat. And it got into like the fabric of the car seat and everything else. And so the next morning, Amanda gets... Annie up and she puts her in this cutesy little flower outfit and she puts the bow on her head and she puts her in the car seat. She gets her buckled up. She, she goes down, they, they drive to the mall and they get out and they put her in the stroller and they're pushing her around in the store. And Amanda's like, what, why does it smell like bacon? Why does it smell like bacon in the store? Right? And she's like, is it, she's trying to smell herself, her mom, trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of a sudden to her horror, she realizes that our perfect little brand new baby girl smells like bacon. And so it was this situation where if you were far enough away from my daughter, you'd be like, wow, that, that little girl is adorable. She is super cute. She's amazing. Like, look at how awesome that little girl is. But the closer you got, you were met with this repugnant stale bacon smell that made you kind of step back and be like, what did you do to your baby girl, right? From a distance, she looked one way, but up close, you were reviled. That's what we're talking about here. Religion that from a distance looks great, but when you get up close in that person's life, you're like, whoa, your life smells like stale bacon. You are spiritually bankrupt. You put on this front and you fool everybody, but now that I get to know you, there's no substance behind this. James says that's not how we want to be. Instead, he says there's a religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father, and it's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Think about everything that you don't like about hypocritical Christianity. Does it not all boil down to this facade that somebody puts up? The words that they say that don't match up with the life that they live. Is that not what we revolt against? Yes, absolutely it is. You want to know what James' answer to that is? James' answer to that, do you, what does he say here? So leave the church if you're frustrated with that. Does he say Bash the church if you're frustrated with that. Does he say hate the church if you're frustrated with that? No, what's James' answer to hypocritical, hypocritical Christianity? 
It's to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer alone. Guys, if you want to transform what your perception is of this group or of your friends or of other people around you, the answer is not to to just sit there and complain about hypocritical Christianity. The answer is to distinguish yourself. And not just yourself, but, but other people as well. And to challenge them to, to follow the example. James says here, he says this. You want to know what pure religion is? He says love, and then he gives two types of people. Who does he talk about? The widow and the orphan. Now you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know any widows and orphans. Who am I supposed to go love? I, I, nobody? Great, I'm off the hook. No, that's not what he's saying. Why does he hold up the widows and the orphans as people that you need to go love to demonstrate the, the genuine relationship with God that you have? Are widows and orphans typically in a position to pay you back for the love that you give them? No. They're not. These were and still remain two of the most needy and destitute people types, people groups that there were. And so James is saying pure religion is is loving others and not expecting them to do anything else for you. Loving them, you remember when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. You remember when John said, we love because what? He first loved us. So James is saying, as as you come into a genuine relationship with God, his love for you should permeate you and drive you into loving others, expecting nothing back from them. And that's why he says, love the orphans and the widows. Well, does that mean I don't love the kids who have dads and moms and I don't love the people that aren't widows? No, you, you, you love everybody but you love them from that pure position of loving them because of how much God has done for you. And then he says, it's also to keep oneself unstained from the world, which is to to go after sin in your life, right? Everywhere that it's found and to try to root it out of your life. This is how James is summing up what it means to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, which is also, by the way, how Jesus summed it up too, right? The lawyer, the expert in the law went to Jesus and he said this, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law? What is the greatest piece out of the the Old Testament at the time, the Torah, the the law, right? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is God's word, teacher, Jesus, meant to do in us? What What should we be striving for most of all as a result of God's word? What does Jesus answer? He answers, love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, and might. That's keeping myself unstained from the world. Going after my life turning it inside out, shaking it out, all the junk, all the garbage, all the sin, repenting from all that junk and putting back in God's word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And second, he says is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the orphans and love the widows. And so Jesus is saying, you want pure religion. Great, be an authentic believer. Love God and love others. Be a doer of the word. Because basically, guys, if you are a doer of God's word, they're all going to fall into those two categories. That's why Jesus said the entirety of the law depends on those two commands. And that extends throughout the rest of the Bible. The entirety of scripture. If you are going to take God's word and apply it, it's either going to be an act of devotion to God or in an act of devotion to God, an act of love for other people. That's what it's going to come down to. And that's why James bookends this whole idea of being a doer of the word with this idea of loving those who can't offer anything back to you and keeping yourself unstained from the world. Y'all, fork 
is a fork, not a dinglehopper. And the Bible is not a fashion accessory. God gave it to us, revealed himself in it, and wants it to be used by his spirit in our lives to transform us, to conform us to the image of God. He wants us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you gave us your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for it being so clear. We thank you that it is something that we can read and say, okay, what do you want us to do with this? And that we can respond and we can act in, in respo- response to it. God, I pray that you would allow us to, to be committed to doing that. Lord, that you would guard our hearts against just wanting to check a box or rush through something or, or reading in a distracted way just to say that we've done it or get it done or have some sort of faulty mentality that, that the Bible is some sort of, of karma-saturated device that if we read it, something good's going to happen to us that day. God, forgive us for even entertaining such thoughts. Instead, God, let us be driven and desirous of, of reading your words so that we will be more like Christ afterwards, that we will have a game plan for change in our lives afterwards, for transformation afterwards. God, help us to be known not as a group whose religion is worthless, but as a group of believers whose religion is pure and undefiled before you because we love you and we love one another. God, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only that none of us may be deceived. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.